Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body. I have Adam Lane Smith on the call today, and I am beyond excited for this one. Adam's coached clients through his attachment method for years. He's helped people from blue-collar families to millionaire CEOs, anyone who's looking to fix their dating life, marriage, or overall health of all relationships. And Adam, this is a field I'm extremely interested in at the moment in terms of relationship psychology and everything else. So like I said, I'm beyond excited to have you on. I really appreciate you coming on today, my man. I appreciate you having me here. Podcasters make the world go round. Nobody hears about hardly anything without podcasters. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you very much for your kind words. If you wouldn't mind telling my audience a bit more about yourself and really curious to know how you got into the field of relationship psychology and how you made that transition then into becoming an attachment specialist. And it'd be really good actually, if you could share what you shared offline then in terms of the career shift, that was really fascinating. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So about 15 years ago, I made the decision that I wanted to become a psychotherapist and help people. I'd been, I grew up with attachment issues myself, insecurities, didn't know what to do, fixed them somehow, but didn't know what I was doing, just muscled through it. And a lot of my friends and family growing up had attachment issues too. And I said, I got to help somebody. So I went to school six years, got a master's degree in psychology, focused marriage and family therapy, then three years more and to get a license. It's nine years of training and, and apprenticeship to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I was working in a clinic. I at one point I worked with death penalty inmates who'd committed multiple grisly murders, high profile killings. Then uh, I worked in a clinic for low income families and at risk families. I started working with millionaire entrepreneurs from there and with trust fund families and CEOs and everybody. And what I discovered during all of that was that the diagnoses they told us about in the book, I got the book up here, both of the books, um, the diagnoses they talked about, they couldn't really explain how a person got them. We had sort of ideas about how a person develops a mental health problem, but we couldn't really define it. And we couldn't really explain how to make them not have it. We would just hopefully try to find ways, custom tailored to each person to sort of make them feel better and make the symptoms go away. But then the general consensus was, well, it's always going to be there and they're always going to have the problem and it will keep coming back. And that wasn't satisfying for me. I wanted to learn more. So I started studying something that very few therapists really learn about, something called attachment theory, which is the belief that the way that you and your brain form as an infant and as a toddler and as a small child, the way that your parents teach you to get your needs met, the way they teach you that other people will cooperate with you and care for you or not, the way that you have to fight for approval or beg for approval, the way that you have to protect yourself, all of that matters and builds deep into your brain and then creates overwhelming anxiety and crushing depression and fear and insecurity or the belief nobody else is ever going to take care of you or care for you or love you, that everyone's going to betray you. All of those things sit there for life until you fix them. I started studying attachment theory. And as I did, it unlocked everything else. It was the answer to everything else. And so I started teaching other therapists. I started leading seminars. I started publishing books. At the time, the hardly anyone who was reading them, but the people that did were freaking out about what is this? Why does no one, why has no one explained this before? And why has it never been this accessible? My book was a hundred pages boiled down attachment theory and how to fix it into 100 pages. It's called Slaying Your Fear. It's on Amazon now. Um, 
but I was making almost no money. I was working, I, I had a family. I was working at a clinic. Clinics, many, many times people don't realize this, but therapists, your clinic takes half of their income. So whatever you pay a therapist, half of it goes to the clinic. Then the therapist has to pay taxes and fees out of their half. And then the government takes all their fees and, and, and taxes and everything comes out of it. I was making almost no money. I could hardly feed my family. I had to pick up copywriting on the side. I was a therapist by day and a copywriter, a novelist by night. And it just was not paying the bills. And all I wanted to do was teach about attachment theory. So I started teaching about attachment theory online on Twitter of all places. And I developed this giant mega thread of 300 harsh psychology truths and how attachment and weaves into all the diagnoses and all the problems that are going in and a podcaster happened to read that mega thread that went so big that politicians in the UK were angry about it and exploding and saying how politically inappropriate I was and how dare this man send out this information that's not true. It was. It was all accurate. Um, but podcaster picked me up and he interviewed me and it exploded from there. And I get now I get to talk on the world stage about attachment. I got about 400,000 followers so far. I'm going to LA in a couple of weeks to do a bunch of in-person filmings for multiple different shows. I'm putting together a mini series. I'm putting together a big giant retreat for the end of the year uh, in a different country. And it's it has been a roller coaster, but it's been an honor being able to teach people about attachment and seeing people cry with hope. And seeing families get fixed and seeing uh, parents who didn't know how to love their children. They didn't have, they loved them, but they didn't know how to love them. Being able to raise healthy children when they themselves didn't get that love growing up. Changing the future one family at a time. It's long story, but man, it's, it's made all the difference. Absolutely incredible story. And speaking of podcasters, let's shout out Mind Pump whilst we're here. Because just like many... <laughs> Incredible people who, who are having a huge impact on the world. I found Fantastic. lots of people through Mind Pump, and you're one of them. So shout out to Mind Pump, uh, my buddies. Oh, man. Legend, Justin, right? Adam, Sal, you guys are phenomenal. They, I was just there uh, a couple months ago doing a filming with them. Uh, I'm probably going to go back and harass them again pretty soon. But they are they are the kind of guys, you know, they always say like, don't meet the internet celebrities because they'll be awful. No, those guys were even better in person when you meet them. Like they are the warmest, most loving human beings like you can imagine. So shout out uh, to you guys, Mind Pump. You guys are changing the world too. I think exactly the same because I met them in person. For the, I actually featured on their podcast back in 2017. Yep. Yep. And Mind Pump were the first podcast I ever listened to ad back in, I think, 2014 or 2015. Literally the first ever podcast. And yeah, I thought exactly the same. When I met them in person, I thought, wow, down to earth guys. Because as you say, you're like meeting celebrities and in your head, you kind of build it up, don't you? Like, oh, these guys are, but they're just yeah. so down to earth and humble and just cool guys, you know? They're everything you want somebody to be when you meet them and you, and you don't want your hopes crushed. That was those guys. They set the bar. Awesome. And that, through Mind Pump, through that interview is where I found out about you. And I found out about the attachments and I found that so fascinating. The four attachments for example, I straight away identified, in fact, Adam, my girlfriend identified me as <laughs> this This one first. It was the avoidance attachment Ooh, for me. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was, it, what was it that stuck for you when you started identifying yourself that way? What hit? Because avoidance is a tricky one. They mm. think that they, you guys usually just think that you're just normal. You're just practical. Like, this is just how it has to be. What was it that clicked for you? That was like, wait, wait, maybe something's not right. 
That's a really good point, actually, because I said that to my girlfriend yesterday. I was, I was saying, and just before we get into the the four attachments, it's like, can you actually be a combination of? Because I was trying to debate yes. the fact that maybe I'm more of a secure attachment, or I've got some of the secure attachment, but also I've got like a little blend of the or big blend, should I say, of the of the avoidance attachment. Attachment is on a spectrum. You can have a little bit of insecurity. You can have a lot of insecurity. A lot of my clients come in with just a bit and they just need a session or two just to kind of write themselves. Some people come in and they need a full life overhaul because theirs is so severe. So yes, you can be mostly secure with some avoidance, especially in romance or in friendship. hundred percent you can. Yeah. So for me, it's more a case of not letting people in, right? That's the one. And you said about not being eager to please as well it's like almost like the opposite to the the anxious one right uh but for me it was definitely that it was just i really enjoy my own company and i just like to do my own thing i know you've heard all this before right i like to do my own thing but i, I never get tired of it i never get tired of it <laughs> i'm trying to justify it, it already <laughs> is it okay if i pick your brain a little go bit ahead go ahead all the audience and everything. okay i'd I love, love you that. too i love that um what is it for you? What is it that has prevented you in the past from letting people in? Is it a fear that it's, you're going to get hurt? Is it that relationships haven't felt worth it? Is it that you you didn't think you would get anything out of it except exhaustion? Was it a fear of rejection? What was it for you? So for me, just to give you a little bit of context is I've had quite a lot of long-term relationships, right? So mm-hmm. my child, I'll just quickly dip back into childhood, definitely plays a part into this. And I wanted to just mm-hmm. mention the fact that I had therapy and, and your your views on that as well. So it definitely plays a part in it. Didn't have a father around, grew up around a lot of domestic violence, all there that kind go. of stuff. Probably play, plays a go. part in in, in how I <laughs> yeah played a little bit of a part, but um, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Uh, sorry, what was the, the specific question then? Sorry, lost my trail of thought a bit there. What is it that was hard, makes it hard for you to let people in? Is it fear? Is it not seeing a point? Is it not knowing what joy there could be? Is it mm. fear of rejection or getting betrayed? What is it for you that makes it, it has made it hard to let people in? It's fear of commitment more than anything, I think. It's committing. Ooh. And because of and because of where I'm at now, I had an issue with my my girlfriend Janini now. I've never met anyone like her. Like things have just mm-hmm. clicked differently with Janini. And mm-hmm. I do feel mm-hmm. like I do feel like we're going to have a a future together, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Does that make but it scarier sometimes? It does make it a little bit scarier, but I've never <laughs> had this. I've never had this about a clarity though. But sure. yeah, with her, I'll give you an example. About three months into the relationship, only three months, right? Technically three months, maybe six months, right? Let's say six mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. I basically had a freak out and I ended it. Yep. And I just said yep. to her, "I I, I don't want to commit to this." I felt like yep. I'm just going to be fully transparent here. I was like, "Right, mm-hmm. I, I might." want to sleep with other you know like or, or, mm-hmm. or date other women i shouldn't say sleep with mm-hmm. date other women right and that's an issue and i was like i don't want to i don't want to let her down and bring her into my world if i'm gonna you know if i've still got that on my mind and right I, I, we, literally within a few days adam i was like what have i just done oh yes. my god yes. and then i had to and then i had to fight <laughs> to get her back and i managed to get her uh-huh. back so uh-huh. thank you Janini. <laughs> and it's all going great now but that was a wake-up call for me adam i was like i do not want that that's all that life I've lived that life and I want Janini and I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw this one up. So I'm glad I got it back. That's what it takes for people, for men, especially with avoidant attachment is you have to have a, what's called a rock bottom moment of, I am so unhappy with the way my life is that I would rather endure anything but this. And that's the only time your brain stops and says, maybe there's a better way to live than I have been living. Maybe it's not always true that I have to keep people out. And you're 
your fear of being hurt and being betrayed or being trapped with commitment, that that fear was less than the fear of living without her. So she must be absolutely incredible for that to happen. You got you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely incredible for sure and special. So I glad I didn't mess that one up, Adam. I'm glad I pulled that one back by the skid of my teeth. But um, I'm very tempted to turn this into a whole session about me and therapy. But I'm gonna... I will. Oh, I will <laughs> if you let me. <laughs> exactly. I've got to be careful there. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. But um, it would be valuable for the audience anyway. But if you wouldn't mind just breaking down the four attachments. Sure. The yeah. audience. So if you are raised from birth with parents who care about you, who listen to you, who cooperate with you, who meet your needs quickly and who discipline you to make you act better, but don't punish you so that they feel better. Parents who, if you make a mistake, they listen to you and ask you why you made that mistake and they help you correct it. I've got four kids right now of my own. Number five is on the way. I discipline my children, but I listen to them. I ask them why they made the choice they made. I walk them through why that wasn't a good choice. I walk them through how to make sure that doesn't happen again in the future. I guide my children in a compassionate, cooperative way. I am building secure attach with, attachment with them because they don't have to hide. There's no games. They tell me what they need. I tell them if we can do that or if it's healthy for them or whatever it is. And we work together cooperative. There's no games with us. There's no earning approval, earning love or protecting themselves or afraid of being afraid of committing because they've been hurt in the past when they've been trapped. So they're afraid of being trapped. That happens a lot. Like domestic violence will make you afraid of being trapped in a home or women who are unstable will make you afraid of being trapped in a relationship. That happens very often. My kids don't have to be afraid of that. Thank goodness. Um, and a secure parent will make you secure as well. That way you grow up into an adult who just says, I'm just going to tell people what I need and I'll just push back gently with boundaries and we'll cooperate together. And if people don't want to, that's okay. I'll just go find someone who does. And they just cooperate with other people. Now, most people listening to this podcast are probably going to say it sounds like absolute, like a flying unicorn just farted a rainbow out over Adam's head because that will never, ever happen. That's never how people live. And the research shows that about 65% of adults in the West, especially, uh, have broken attachments. 65% do not have that. That's down from 65% having that about 20 to 30 years ago. So it's getting worse as the generations go on. Then there's in, in three insecure attachment styles that come from getting broken as a little child. If your parents don't meet your needs and it feels like it's your fault, you might turn inward and say, there's something unlovable about me that right here that everybody else can see. And if I ask for my needs to get mad, if I make too much noise, if I'm imperfect, if I don't get an A plus on every graded paper, if I don't do everything perfect, people will see that I'm a fraud and they will abandon me. So my entire life is about fear of abandonment and they do everything they can to please other people. Codependency comes out of this really hard. Um, then there's the other way. Everybody else is hurting each other. This might sound a little familiar to you, Martin. Everybody, everybody is hurting each other. Everybody's crazy. They're all messed up. You can't trust people. When they get stressed out, they don't act right. And if you ever get committed to something or locked in, people will use it against you and they'll hurt you. And so you got to stay away from that and keep everybody at arm's length and never let yourself get trapped. And if you do, you chew your leg off to get out of the trap, just like a coyote. And that is, that's avoidant attachment. And sometimes if you're really, really injured, you get a blend of those two where you blame yourself and other people at the same time. And it's just wild chaos. We call that disorganized style. Those are the four attachment styles. And like I said, most people listening to this, at least two thirds of you guys are probably going to identify with one of those broken styles. I just had a massive light bulb moment then when you said feeling like you're trapped in a home. 
I just had this moment where I was like, that literally just hit the nail on the head then in terms of one of my fears of like moving in and stuff. I was just like, that is it. That's like one of the things I actually, in the subconscious now you've just brought out to the conscious mind, if that makes sense. Yes. It's if you could, uh, if, if you could install a secret trap door in your bedroom so that if a woman was in there for too long, you could just jump in the door and launch yourself. Yeah, that's, that's what a lot of guys with avoidance would do. You're capable of immense love, but you're terrified of that love. So the better, the, the more loving and secure the other person is, the closer they want to get to you. And the more you crave that connection and the more terrified you are of the relationship, so most guys with avoidance will do something very stupid when they meet a wonderful woman. So I asked, is it scarier? The better she is, the worse you become until it reaches a crisis point. Then you have to make a decision or uh, you lose the most wonderful woman in the world. I'm glad that you didn't. So am I, my man. So with the, I'm curious to know the biggest issues you see. So with the three insecure attachments, you've got avoidance, you've got the anxious attachment. You've also got the disorganized, right? So what are the the biggest kind of, what attachments do you see the most problems with as a compatibility issue in relationships? Here's the problem is if you have secure attachment, if you're a person with secure attachment, you believe most people in this world will cooperate with you. Everybody's going to be fairly low drama. People are going to just talk with you. They're going to be open. They're going to be honest. No one's afraid. No one's defensive. And you're going to walk around being honest and open and blunt and clear about what you want and what you expect and asking other people to do the same. And you're going to push on people's boundaries if they're terrified and you will signal to other secure people that you're ready for a relationship of a friendship or, or any kind of relationship and they will respond in kind. So secure people tend to link up very easily and form great friendships and, and relationships and everything. They get married pretty young. If they talk to anybody else with insecure attachment, other people treat them like a threat and wonder who this crazy person is, but they also bond very slow and very carefully. So they also feel that the other person's boring. Secure people are both threatening and boring or intimidating and boring at the same time. So secure people, and they they think that insecure people come on way too strong or are way too secretive or are way too high drama. So they back off. And so insecure people find each other and they signal really fast about good feelings. I will make you feel very good. I'm going to make you very happy. Avoidant people usually learn how to make other people feel very good very early in the relationship and build feelings very quickly. And anxious of anxiously attached people are craving that, and they actually calibrate that as interest. If he is overwhelmingly saturating me with massive attention it, and trying to sleep with me on the first date, it must mean that he loves me. And so anxious and avoidant people chase each other obsessively without either one of them ever wanting to get caught. Um, and they filter out away from secure people. So most insecurely attached people will tell you nobody on earth is securely attached. I've never once ever been friends with or been in a relationship with a secure person. Yes, that is because they filtered you out and you filtered them out. It's two different worlds, two different dating pools. Here's what's going to happen is if you're anxiously attached and craving approval, you will find someone who's avoidantly attached who gives you good feelings. But once they give you a bunch of good feelings at about six to eight months, they start freaking out because they can't fake it anymore. And they can't just make you feel good, make you feel good, make you feel good. You're trying to creep in too close. So then they chew their leg off and jump out the window because they want to escape from you who is now clinging to them, making them feel trapped. The people who will make you feel most trapped are anxiously attached people who do everything for you, but with secret demands in place that you have to meet their needs in return. At first, they'll blame yourself themselves if you don't do it. But over time, they get very resentful of you and nasty 
And unfortunately, over time, this just reinforces the belief for anxious and avoidant people that no one else will ever love them. And until you break the cycle and say, this is ridiculous, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm going to build a loving relationship, you will be stuck stuck in that paradigm forever. That's where I coach people. I tell them to stop. Just stop it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I bet your experience, your personal experience with attachment issues, if you wouldn't mind just sharing that, because I'm sure knowing everything you know, coaching all the people you've coached, the wisdom, right, is what helps Mm -hmm. you. But your own experience must make you better as well, right, and more... I guess, understand it in a sense. I Yeah, I know how it feels. I know how it smells. I know how it sounds. I know everything. I've been there. Uh, I grew up with anxious attachment style myself, trying to earn approval and and connect with other people. My my family network, my extended family, is a lot of dysfunction and struggle in the whole network. No, I'm not saying anyone's a bad person. I'm not arid family laundry in public, but uh, there's a lot of dysfunction in the extended family network from a variety of trauma sources and all kinds of problems. So I, I grew up, feeling that way. And I grew up in California, which is unfortunately ground zero for a lot of attachment issues as well. And it spreads from some of the major urban cities there and, and families are breaking apart and there's all kinds of issues there. And it, everybody I knew had attachment issues. So it wasn't just me. It was growing up, seeing it and experiencing it and having my heart broken and, and not knowing how to get my needs met. And then fixing it blindly because I couldn't live that way anymore. Much like yourself. Like I can't live this way anymore. I won't do this. I'm going to fix it. How do I do that? So I developed a step-by-step method that I followed that worked, that I started teaching to other people and it worked. And I I have that inside my book, Slaying Your Fears, the step-by-step method that I had to follow to fix my attachment. And now and then how I taught that to my patients and now how I teach it to my coaching clients. Incredible. Incredible. So Two questions in one here. So firstly, I'd like to know what the divorce rate is in the Western world, right? And then secondly, I'd like to know the most common issue used, because I know something that you mentioned, maybe this is at the top, you did mention about guys not really getting their shit together, essentially, and not really, and females then essentially over the period of years, not really, just not not having that communication, that communication breakdown, the guy's not really measuring up as a man and doing what he said he was going to do maybe at the altar or whatever, what she expected. And then ultimately the woman just checks out over time. She checks out and then the guy all of a sudden step up to the plate. I'm ready to change. I'll do anything it takes. And then it's too late. Mm -hmm. That's something that stood out to me. But yeah, the divorce rate and and what you would say is the biggest problem or problems that come to mind uh, with marriages or marriage breakdowns. So the divorce rate that everyone says is 50-50. It's 50%. Well, no. It's 50% if you factor in every single divorce. Uh, that includes people who've been divorced seven times. So if you factor in every single divorce, then some people have seven divorces and they're stacking it in really hard. So uh, the divorce rate seems to be, when you factor all of that in, about one third of first divorces will end in divorce. About one third, which is not great, but it's 33% instead of instead of 50%. So about 33% of first divorces are are likely to end in divorce. The number one, I was a marriage and family therapist. So the number one reason I saw marriages end in divorce was driven by broken attachment. It was one of them had anxious attachment. One of them had avoidant attachment. They got together and the avoidant person was convinced to take the plunge and and make the commitment. And the anxious person was convinced that they would eventually earn that person's love if they could just have marriage. And they got together and it was not a great choice and they made it work until they had kids. And usually the women are more likely to have anxious attachment, be approval seeking. Men are more likely to have avoidant attachment and be distant. 
And a mom who has a child and then watches that child grow up, she goes through a number of hormonal changes and has, has many different changes that happen, but she doesn't want her child to grow up that way. And she bonds with her child through a massive hormonal chemical process and gets all those needs met she's never had. She has experiences she's never had before emotionally, mentally. Um, the dad doesn't get those, but mom does. And she begins forming at least somewhat more secure attachment and resenting dad for not knowing how to provide that to the child. So she just starts nagging him to be a better dad. And he has no idea what she's, what she's talking about or why, or how it's like, how he's supposed to act. He has no idea why he's suddenly being attacked when he used to be her God. Now he's the devil he has no clue. I've written a book on this right above my head. there called exhausted wives, bewildered husbands, because eventually after 10, 15 years of that women raise their children, they're just waiting till the last one finishes high school so that they can divorce the dad. Basically, and she has usually alienated the children against dad, talks to the kids about how dad is awful. They all unite against dad and dad is left alone. They divorce. Then he goes and lives in some apartment somewhere and gets massively depressed until he kills himself. It's a gigantic issue here in the West, and it's happening because of attachment. And dads don't know how to fix it because they've never heard of avoiding attachment. Moms don't know how to fix it. They've never heard of attachment either. All they can do is yell at the dad for not being the person that they want him to be randomly overnight. And, and it's just awful. If you can fix that pattern earlier on before she gives up and burns out, and while he can still do something about it, you can fix that. You can fix that divorce rate. So the biggest, biggest driver of divorce um, affairs, they say, are the number one cited reason. But affairs happen because of attachment issues. Affairs don't just happen. You don't trip one day on the on the way from way home from work and fall into somebody's genitals. You you have an affair usually because of those attachment issues. Fascinating, and you've saved so many relationships and marriages, right? That must, I mean, it's incredible. And can you give us an example? Because I know you gave an example once, the sexual side of it, for example, because obviously that intimacy is a huge thing, right? You mentioned something about uh, an example about a couple that were having struggles with that and literally within, like they hadn't had sex for like years, I think it was. And you said literally within a, within a week, they were, they were getting at it. And then like, because the reality is there's more to it than just the sex. Obviously, it's the emotional attachment, emotional connection that you have, right? And is essential, right? Especially for females. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind, give us an example or anything you can elaborate on with that. It'd be awesome. Yeah. So I had a young couple come into my office. I won't share any private details. Everything I do is confidential. But I did have one young couple come into my office. Interestingly, they were both avoidantly attached, which is rare to see, and especially rare that that would survive into marriage. Um, but they were both avoidantly attached, and it only worked because his job took him away for long periods of time so they could have gigantic gaps away from each other. So that was the ideal marriage for two avoidant people. But once she got pregnant, it started to get very real, and they both started freaking out. And he started having an emotional affair with a female colleague that he was going on trips with not a physical affair but an emotional affair and he was finding in her an emotional connection he had never felt with anybody because he was getting his his some of his attachment was a little bit repairing with her um his very pregnant wife found out about the affair and they came into my office two weeks after she found it out. He wanted to leave with the other woman, but she was begging him to stay to raise the child that wasn't even born yet. So they walked in and I did a full assessment on their relationship and said, you guys both have 
horribly broken attachment, but it's both avoidant. This is like fire and more fire. And so if we want to fix this, we need to get both of you on track to have a better relationship. And they they were skeptical, very skeptical. But we walked them through some of the conversations of how to open up, how to talk about their needs, how to share the expectations. And you can maybe you can attest to this, but people with avoidant attachment, the one of the biggest fears is unspoken expectations that the other person has that number one, you you won't figure out. So you're going to get hurt or number two, those unspoken expectations are going to overwhelm you so that you can never ask for your needs to get met. Is that is that a problem that you the, used to the, face? The second one definitely resonates with me for sure. There we go. So what I taught them, what I teach avoidant people is here's how to share your needs and see that they will get mad. Here's how to just ask. You don't have to schmooze the other person to make them feel better. You can actually just say, hey, this means a lot to me. Could you do this for me? This would be so wonderful. And the other person, because they love you, will say, yeah, that sounds awesome. They might say, I need this from you so that I can do that. But yeah, I I will definitely do that. Can we take care of each other? Being able to openly state it like that, game changer for people with avoidant attachment, being able to just be honest and then being able to tell someone else when it doesn't feel right. Hey, this just doesn't feel right to me. Can we fix it? And the other person say, yeah, I don't want you to not feel right. Let's do it. And you fix it. And then unspoken expectations. The other person's very clear about it says, Hey, this is what I need from you. Can you do that? Uh, This is all I need from you. And you say, really, it's that clear. And just make it those three things right there. I taught this to this couple and three weeks after she had discovered his affair, Five, so five weeks after they, uh, no, yeah, three weeks after she had, they, they walked into my office. It was five weeks after she had discovered his affair. Um, at five weeks, they were happier together than they had ever been in any time in their relationship, ever. Five weeks after his affair. Five weeks after he, three weeks after he walked in my office and told me he was thinking about leaving with the other woman. Three weeks after that, just three weeks of better attachment was so overwhelmingly wonderful to them that they they were so blissfully committed to their marriage, to their family and to raising that child. And they were shocked that they had ever been any other way. Three weeks of good attachment changed their life. And today they are still a thriving, wonderful couple and they have two kids instead. So it's, uh, it's going really well. That's, that's the power of fixing your attachment is just a couple of weeks can change your life forever. Amazing stuff. And it comes down to that awareness, doesn't it? Just being aware of these things, first and foremost, is the first step with anything. But you, you, I've, we've implemented something that you mentioned on Mind Pump about just the simple thing of doing a review once a week. Where do yes. I score out of 10? So the first yeah. score I had, I believe, was a seven. It was a seven. Mm-hmm. And I cranked it up to a nine. And I think I dropped, I didn't actually ask on the weekend because I'm just going to be honest here, right? I kind of... I was doing something. I was just like planning my week on Sunday and I was, we were both tired and everything else, right? Making excuses already. And then uh, she, she asked me something and all she said is, can I help you with anything? Right. I felt so bad afterwards. She said, can I help you with anything? I was like, oh, just let me finish this. I didn't, I never raised my voice, nothing like that. But you know, it's just the way you say it, Nick, let me just finish this first. It was just the way I said it, but she was already, she admitted that she overreacted a little bit as well. So anyway, mm-hmm. so I think I knocked down from a nine to probably an eight again then. So I'll review again at the end of this week. But, um, that's the thing I wanted to ask you about men. We just want to solve problems. So in that oh, yeah. situation, then I, I, even though I'm aware from everything you've said and what I've learned about stop trying to solve the problem. It doesn't work like that when a woman's in an emotional state as well. And then I found that I was just trying to solve it, but it doesn't work like that with females. Like guys generally want to solve the problem and then move forward. Females, they want to think about it and everything else. Right. So what's your thoughts on that scenario? Yeah. I mean, um, everyone's different though, obviously. Here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing that most men don't get 
is a woman's emotions are very, very rarely is the thing she's talking about as the problem. Very rarely is it actually the problem. It's usually the problem is that she doesn't feel safe with you or comfortable with you or close to you. So she can talk about, I want us to go on more dates. And the guy will say, that's dumb. I don't really feel like going on more dates. Why don't we just sit here and watch Netflix and drink beer? And we that was a better option. You are wrong for wanting to go on dates. Well, the problem isn't that she wants to go on dates. The problem that she's not stating is that she wants to feel closer to you and share experiences with you. But she's probably not articulating that. Maybe she doesn't even know that that's what she really wants. If you, anytime you hear a woman state a feeling and then look at you expectantly, don't worry about the feeling or don't worry about necessarily what she's saying. Start asking her about the feelings and what she wants to experience. What do you want to feel and what would help you feel that way? If you do that, you will start seeing what she says as a problem that can be solved. Otherwise, it starts to feel hopeless. We start to feel like she's demanding the impossible from us. She's demanding that we make her feel absolutely euphoric all the time, like some sort of drug. If you stop and ask her what she wants to feel and what would make her feel that way or help her feel that way, that usually is that's a problem you can solve. Do it that way. Your brain will thank you and she will thank you. Love that. Love that. So with women as well, you mentioned about uh, them feeling a certain way, right? And I was going to go somewhere with that then, but I've kind of lost my trailer for, I've got all these thoughts. Let's, not get, let's not get you in trouble here. Let's As not get you talking. in too much trouble. Let's not, let's not get into too much trouble. I don't, I don't want you to be smothered with a pillow at night. No, 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 exactly. I know. We're, we're, murdered. We're, dig, we're digging, digging a hole here. Let's shift gears, Ad. Let's shift gears. Yeah, <laughs> all right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's do it. No, but you said about then uh, something you touched on about uh, women in terms of how they feel, right? And you asking them, asking them how they feel rather than trying to just nip it in the bud and solve the problem, right? Whereas yeah, on the on the, on the flip side, though, I know you said something again on the Mind Pump podcast, you said about men want to feel powerful, right? And that, mm-hmm. that like, that really resonated with me, you know? And some people might say powerful and they look at that in a way where it's like condescending almost, right? Or, you know, but the reality is, because I said, I noticed that my girlfriend sometimes has said, and it was something that was building up. Baby. Every time she would say, oh, he's so cute. Something inside of me would just be like, why am I feeling a little bit triggered right now? I can't figure yeah, it out. Thanks, yeah. babe. Don't say that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was like, and then she said something else. I mentioned it to her after listening to your podcast. And she, and she said something else, like, you know, go and conquer the wall or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I feel good now. <laughs> I feel there powerful, even though I'm not going to conquer the wall. <laughs> 100%. You know, people, people freak out when I say the word power. What does that mean to you when I said a man needs to feel powerful? What did that what did that mean to you when you heard it? I'm curious. It makes me feel almost like just just having that support and having your your girlfriend behind you. And it just made me feel, I guess, that she I know she admires and respects me anyway, but it made me feel more of that, if that makes sense. Yes. Hundred percent. And that's it. That right there is it. When when I say men need to feel powerful in order to protect themselves against depression and anxiety and and to feel useful and to feel good in this world, men need to feel powerful. The people that get upset are usually people who have been victimized in the past. And they think that I am saying men need to feel powerful at the expense of other people and that power is about controlling others. That's what that's all that they imagine, usually because they've been hurt. I don't get mad at them when they have that response. I just say, oh, that's that's your history. Um The ability to see a starving child 
and give them not only a meal to eat, but find them somewhere to live and food to eat and a way to be in a, a place that is safe. That is power. The ability to work a job that feeds your children and provides for their needs and protects them and gives them a home, that is power. The ability to protect your wife from bad guys that roam the streets at night, that is power. Power is a tool. It is just a tool. And that is what men need in order to feel like they are worthy of living. In order to feel that life is worth living, men need power, the power to change their environment, the power to change situations for others and take care of them, and the power to end our own pain at times or to overcome our pain or to have a purpose, a meaning, some sort of power long term to change the world. Men must have that power. And we we value it when the woman in our life recognizes that we have power. That's called respect. She respects us for the power that we hold and the way that we wield that power. And that is more important for most men than feeling loved. Love that. Very interesting. Where would you say then for the most part with females, it's not the opposite, but it kind of is. They do you, Would you agree? Because I read this somewhere. Most of the time, they're simply not just feeling heard or loved. And they might say something like, it might build up like clean the garage or something, right? You still haven't cleaned the garage, right? But a lot of the times it's not necessarily because of that specific task. It's more because maybe they're, they're missing something and maybe not feeling as loved a lot of the times. Am I on the right lines? Women, women feel happiest when they feel, feel loved. Cherished might be another word. When they feel cherished, when they feel uh, that someone has great affection for them and is looking out for them. And also when they feel useful to the people that they love, that is when a woman is happiest to feel loved by her family and friends, and then to be useful to her family and friends in caring for them, in supporting them in uplifting them in encouraging their work. This is where women, most women are, are most content and most depressed when they don't have those two things. So if, uh, if a woman is having negative feelings, women's feelings are enormously important. Women have feelings to be able to identify problems in their relationships and their environments. That's what they have feelings for. So it, it takes a really stupid, stupid man to disregard a woman's feelings completely because her feelings are telling her something is wrong in my relationship and I want to fix it. So if she's coming to you, telling her, telling you there's a bad feeling. She's trying to get you to fix it. And in old Greek mythology, in uh, the Orestian, Orestian trilogy with Orestes, um, I believe it was following the fall of Troy. There was a prophetess named Cassandra who was gifted with the ability to see the future, but cursed that no one would ever believe her. And this is most women in the world when the man in their life won't listen to them and their warnings and their feelings and their, and their cares and their nurturing. And Hey, please do this or this bad thing will happen. That's most women. They feel cursed with the gift of foresight and nobody will ever listen to them. They're Cassandra all over again. And the worst thing you can do is disregard a woman's feelings. The best thing is to listen to them, talk with her about what she might be feeling is the problem. This makes her feel loved and then identify if there are any problems or if her feelings are, are being clouded by something else, but to help her resolve those feelings, that also makes her feel useful because if there really is a problem and the relationship really does get better through this process, she has helped. And that, that is how you make a woman feel loved and helpful and useful at the same time is by taking care of her feelings. And if you don't, 
you are driving a wedge between you that will eventually lead to divorce. Just It just will. And therapy, Adam, right? I know you mentioned about therapy generally. <laughs> look at this. Look at his face. <laughs> Whoops. No, but therapy for men, I heard you saying something about, you know, therapy generally. It works sometimes, I guess. But for the most part, men need to be solving problems together, right? And it's funny because you said this, and I actually lined up a face-to-face in-person podcast with a good friend of mine. And we actually had a chat and we went deep on things as well. And it was like the best therapy session I've ever had. But I did have therapy before. And it was, it was helpful more for me to just be aware of certain childhood things sure. and everything else. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how males and females respond to therapy? I know there's a lot of, you know, variants there, but. It depends largely on the ty- on the therapy modality being used. So yeah. I, like when I went through school, one big thing I was taught was solution-focused therapy, which men just eat up because it's tell me the problem. All right, let's find a solution to it. And, and men just, they can't get enough of that because it empowers, I hate the word empowers, it's such a, a two-cent word nowadays, but it gives men the tools they need to use their skills and strength to solve problems. That is power. It gives men power. Um most therapy modalities being taught here in the West nowadays, America, Canada, and Europe, most of them are humanism, which comes down to the belief that people have all the answers they need already, that if they feel validated enough, that they'll be okay, that everything is a lack of validation, and that they just need to feel better, which might work with women, but what happens is the women go in and they feel cared for by their therapist, so they keep paying a therapist for five, ten years because they feel that their therapist likes them, so then they share and, and have a, a relationship with their therapist. Um, men don't want that. That's useless to them. That's a drain on money and time, which are two things that men cannot afford to lose because those are resources we spend our life gathering is money and time or running out of time. So men want solutions. They crave them. Therapy modalities focus purely on solutions. Men eat them up. Humanism therapy very rarely has a a good success rate or a good retention rate with men because it just feels useless to most of them. Interesting. Makes sense. And then on the flip side, you did say about men solving problems together, right? Getting together and just brotherhood in general. Would you say just having like-minded men around you to be able to conversate with and solve problems with on a regular basis is obviously very important for guys. If the men have good attachment and can open up and say, hey, guys, I'm having a problem. It's kind of embarrassing, but I want feedback to fix it. Here's the problem. Has any of you fixed that problem? If men can do that, it's overwhelmingly helpful because that gets all that collected data and knowledge from generations of men together and says, all right, let's fix this problem together. And they all work on it together. That is the only way it gets better. But most men with attachment issues say no one ever wants to hear about my problems or people will use it against me, or they will think I'm worthless, or they will not want to be around me anymore. Or then so men shut up and they refuse to talk about it. Um, we don't even form male friendships hardly anymore. It's It's got so bad that most men aren't even doing that. Yes, if you can have a good network of men who share solutions, it's one of the best things on earth for you to help over help you overcome problems if you have good attachment to help you do that. But I do feel like men, we have got to actively do that intentionally because as men, we women tend to do that naturally, right? That's their superpower almost, isn't it? The, in the, the social element, their social creatures, right? So they tend to do that more naturally. Fantastic. Whereas us guys, we can just immerse ourselves into work or whatever and just run away from our problems until, you know, you know, with the suicide rate and everything else, right? So 
Would you agree that we've got to be intentional about that? We've got to actually make time for friendships a bit more? Absolutely. And that's what women usually try to drag out of us. Does your girlfriend try to drag your feelings out of you basically at gunpoint? Pretty much. <laughs> that's, that's one massive benefit to being in a relationship with a woman is they won't let you not talk about your feelings. They will they will pull a gun on you and say you're having feelings whether you like it or not. But that, that's a, an enormous benefit if we can be open to that and talk about the challenges we're experiencing and then find a solution to it. Um, it it's one of the best things there is. And yes, you should be doing that with your male friends as well. That's, that's, that's how humans work. It's how we've always worked. Definitely. And a lot of guys do. And I'll be honest, I sometimes fear this as well. I'm over it now pretty much, but it coming across as weak when you share some of your vulnerabilities, yes. right? With your girls, yes. especially. Oh, yes. That's a big I get problem, that all right? the time. Yeah. I get it all the time. When guys come in, they say, oh, Adam, I don't want to be, I don't want to look weak and pathetic. I don't think I'm going to open up my feelings. And I say, well, that what, what do you think of when I say vulnerable? They say like crying on the floor, like a child. I'm like, well, yeah, if you do that, it's going to be terrible. I would never tell you to do that. What do you think of when I say vulnerable? What, what, how does that make you feel there, bro? Me, it makes me feel that I'm sharing stuff that I'm struggling with. Essentially, <laughs> I right? You're so shaking like, your voice already. Yeah, I know. I am stuttering already. <laughs> That's right. Give me a couple more yeah. shots of whiskey before we can even have a conversation about <laughs> this. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It does make me feel like I'm sharing essentially my weakness, and in my head as well. Sometimes you think, oh, you know, is my girl actually equipped to help me with this and you know the mo for the most part like you say they listen to you and they understand your emotions better than anyone so just the fact that they can listen to you and understand is huge right yes mm. what does it make you think that they are going to think of you if you are sharing something about you that you don't like or that you feel it, ashamed about it makes me think if i'm honest that she then would lose a little bit of trust in me essentially because I'm not being the strong man I should be. You know, you sometimes, well, I sometimes think down my head, no, I've got to be strong. You know, I, I am a leader and everything else, but it's like, I need to just not, not make her have any doubts essentially, right? About the future. Like if I'm coming across as weak, then maybe she's going to start doubting, you know, can this guy actually step up? Can he actually provide for me in the future? Is he what he says he is? But mm -hmm. just it's just overthinking. I'm kind of aware of that as well, you know, for the most part. Well what you're perceiving is that she is going to think that you are diminished in power, right? There we go. She's going to think you are less powerful because you have opened up about something that you feel out of control with that you don't have the power to fix yet. Mm. Yeah. That's the fear. If I, if I open up about this, I will, if she will think I am less powerful than I am, therefore she will respect me less. Mm. So here's the difference. Here's the difference. When you have a problem, Talk to the other person and, and be solution focused about it. Hey, here's a problem I'm facing. Here's what I'm I'm banging my head against this problem. And it's frustrating me. Here's what I think I want to do about it. Here's a solution I have. But before I do that, can you share any insight with me or any input? Or have you faced anything like that before? Because I want to make sure I fix this. I just want to make sure I do it right. Solution focused. You know, oh, I'm so sad. I don't know what to do. He's going to give up. No, it's let me find a solution. Help me find that solution. Can we work together to find one? Forward thinking, solution focused. If somebody came to you like that, if your buddy came to you and said, hey, man, you've solved this problem before. I know you have, and I'm in that problem, and I don't know the solution right now. Can you talk to me about what you did, and can you help me build a solution? Are you going to look down on him and laugh at him and think he's weak and pathetic? Are you going to respect him more for focusing on a solution and facing the challenge head on? What are you going to think of him?
going to respect him more and I'm going to help him. If he just knuckled down and said, no, everything's fine. I have everything under control. And you could visibly see him going in the wrong direction. Would you respect him more, respect him less? Less for sure. Vulnerability in the right way grows people's respect for you because it demonstrates the power that you have over yourself. It's a different kind of power. You may not have power externally at that moment, but you have power internally. And that is choosing discipline. We call that discipline. It is choosing to apply discipline during a moment of stress to find a solution. That is what separates men from children. If you want to be a child, hold it all inside and she will see you walking in the wrong direction and she will lose her trust and respect in you. If you don't, find, find most likely find a man who has solved the problem you've solved, gather data, gather a suspected solution, then go to a woman and say, here's the solution I think I found. Help me rip it apart and figure out if this is really the right solution for us. And then you apply it from there. And then everybody respects you more and you get the best of both worlds. That is the right way to be vulnerable. And that's the right way to talk about problems. What do you think of that? Is that easier for you instead of going to her and crying on the floor for 20 minutes? Absolutely. hundred percent. And I'm fully aware of that. And so an example might be then, Ad, let's just say, God forbid, a guy lost his job, right? He lost his job and the woman, you know, loves him, they're whatever, they're in a good relationship. But then instead of actually coming to her and saying, look, I've lost my job, let's fix this. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to move forward. If he instead dwells on it and then he just, he's moping around, he's crying about it and not doing nothing about it, that would be then, okay, the woman just gradually starts losing respect for him and goes the other way kind of thing. Yeah, Not necessarily goes the other way. You, you know what I mean? But I, I hear the, you. Two, the two women examples. usually will give you women. Usually if they love you, will give you a grace period. Like he's working through the pain. He will come around eventually and be solution focused. So it's not like the moment you come home and you're sad, she's like already turned off and is, is dating your best friend. That's not, that's what a lot of people, you know, Twitter is, is famous for saying that. Um, <laughs> They'll usually give you a grace period, but here's what you've got to do is there's, there's a great line in, uh, in Macbeth when, when, uh, when Macbeth has murdered Macduff's entire family and they tell Macduff this and he's crying and they say, come on, you have to get up and avenge yourself like a man. And he says, I will, but first I must feel it like a man. Um, he's, he's crushed by the pain of it, but then he does get up and build a plan and then applies it and fix it and happens to, to overcome the kingdom. But, um, this is what you need to do. Feel it. Allow yourself some time to feel it. And then go out and say, here is my plan. I am going to talk with other men or, or, or people or resources, and I am going to get some answers, and I'm going to gather my resources and figure out what the next best step is going to be. And then you do that. And you can even say, I need to, I need to spend three days kind of recovering from this hit. But when I do, I'm going to call this person, this person, and this person, and I'm going to start building a plan. And she'll say, okay, three days. Okay, do what you need to. How can I take care of you for the next three days? What do you need from me? That's already a plan. You're going to cry for three days, but it's already a plan. That's fine. That's doable. Does that, does that feel like a better approach? If you got hit by something, could you tell your girlfriend, hey, I need a couple days, and then I'm going to talk to this person, this person, this person, and build a plan and put it into focus. Would you feel better than just avoiding her for three days and pretending you're fine? Crying Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't deal with those open loops very well at all. You know, I need yeah, to get no. 100%. Yeah, I don't know how people do that when they just... And that's one thing that I've really put into action and in this relationship is we are just brutally as honest as we can be about everything. Good. So everything's out Good. in the open straight away. So... 
You yeah. should be. That's that is more. Sec- that's secure attachment. She's teaching you secure attachment. She's yeah, and she in is your, in your head with a brick. That's fantastic. That's a really good point because she's had a really good upbringing. She had a great father figure, and she's definitely the secure attachment, one hundred percent. So she's teaching me. Then that's a good point. She's teaching me that secure attachment. Never that's thought fantastic. That. That's fantastic. Well, then you are also offering her something wonderful in exchange because you're not a charity case. So you're giving her something fantastic in her exchange for the work that she's doing with you. Awesome stuff. Female hypergamy, right? I'm interested to know your viewpoint on this. I did look into what your, I think your tweet was deleted. It was from ages ago, right? But I'm just going to read out a term I found online just for the audience, right? Feel, uh, female hypergamy. It's a term that women will tend to be more attracted to and more likely to mate with men of a higher economic status than themselves. In other words, men who earn more than they do. Mm-hmm. What's your viewpoint on female hypergamy and that term that I just used there? Just curious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I confront <laughs> this a lot. So the idea that women are trying to marry up into a higher social status for resources and safety for their children is a normal part of evolutionary psychology. Anyone listening to this is going to say, duh, yes, women like men who have status and money. This should not shock anybody. Here is where I diverge from the uh, the online super hardcore red pill crowd is they will take that statement and say, if any man anywhere has even the slightest weak moment, his wife of 30 years who has borne him five sons, who has raised his children with him and adored him every moment of every day, if he shows even a scrap of weakness for a moment, will instantly sleep with his three best friends on the front lawn because he had a moment of sadness. That's what they say. Like if it's, your wife is always watching you waiting to trade up and you're, what's the other saying that they, oh, she's not yours. It's just your turn. There's the other one that is just like overwhelmingly it, it, um, it's it's the same belief that uh, uh, women are incapable of higher thoughts and feelings that men are capable of. Women are really just just a bundle of of emotions, and they will just follow them, and we have to manage them. That's really what that boils down to. Uh, no, it's not true. Women are not always constantly waiting to trade up on you the moment that they can. They're not going to stab you in your sleep so that they can marry the guy next door because he has $10 more in his pocket than you. That's not how it works. Um, very severely broken women with really like severely bad personality disorders. Yes. Okay. Maybe those extreme examples of women, they're usually the ones used by the red hardcore red pill community as examples of the worst cases of women. And then they say they call that, oh, they say that's all women um yes women want stability yes women want safety and resources for their children yes women want the best for their kids are there some bad women out there yes i have seen so many women stay loyal and faithful to absolute deadbeats who offer them nothing and take everything and destroy their life and run them into the ground. And she spends 20 years begging him to please do something better and change some part of himself. And when he refuses for 20 years, she divorces him and then goes out and gets a boyfriend who makes her feel good. And he goes on the internet and says, guys, women are faithless dogs. They are animals, female hypergamy. That's, that's, that's where that usually comes around. So is it a thing while you're dating? And is it especially a thing for damaged women? Yes. Is it a thing that's going to destroy your marriage? If you have a moment of weakness, absolutely not. 
And speaking of the red pill, Adam, right? They do say simple things, right? The generic stuff like, what is it? A man is interested in the female's past and a woman is only interested in the male's future. And I saw you put a post on this. In other words, a female's past body count, right? How many bodies have they caught essentially or how many how many people have they had sex with and, and whatever. Whereas a female is more interested in a man's future and not so much in the past. Is it that simple? Is that bullshit? What was your thoughts? Again, it's a piece of evolutionary psychology. Yes, women are interested in the stability and resources he will create for their family. When I got married with my wife 14 years ago, um, she wanted to know. She wanted 10 children. We're halfway there almost. Um, children. She wanted 10 children. And she was like, okay, what are you going to do as a man to build that sort of net for our family, that financial gain, that protection? You don't have to be a billionaire, but what are you going to do to take care of us? She was very interested in my future. She was just interested in investing in co-investing in the family we were going to be building together in the future. She did look at my past to figure that out, but she also looked at my present and then hoped for the best. Um, yes, that's a thing. Of course, it's a thing. Men want to hedge their bets because they're about to strap themselves to somebody and go on a hardcore mission through the jungle. And if you're going to be handcuffed to somebody, you want somebody who is going to be stable, loyal, make good choices, has good moral fiber, is not pushed around by other people, doesn't just appease other people, especially with their body, isn't going to have babies with you that aren't yours. You want to make sure that that's right. So yes, guys look very closely at a woman's past to make sure she's the right person to invest with. That is a thing. Are they both only obsessed with that? Not necessarily. I was very interested in the future my wife wanted to build together with us. She was interested in my past to see if I was going to be capable of handling a long-term relationship. So yes, it's a thing. And also, no, it's not quite as clear-cut as they want it to sound. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I'd like to wrap this up, Ad. This has been incredible, man. It's just a ton of value. I could keep talking to you all day. So I'm not going to turn this into a four-hour Joe Rogan podcast, right? <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you any advice. This is kind of like a cliche question, but any advice you would give to people who have listened to this? And I'm sure a lot of people have gone, oh, wow, I feel like I'm more that attachment. And maybe I'm more anxious. Maybe I'm more of the of the avoidance attachment or whatever, disorganized. Um, what advice would you give to people who've had that awareness now and they go, right, I want to take the next step now to improve my relationship or at least just delve deeper into um, this attachment stuff? Because I know you've got resources and you've got a great thing, oh, which yeah. I downloaded as well uh, on the four attachments. So yeah, any advice or any resources you'd like to recommend people would be awesome. Oh, absolutely. I have, I have built just about everything so far that I can think about building. Um the best thing I can tell you is this learn your attachment style. I've got a free guide. If you need it, help check adamlanesmith.com. Um, I've got a free guide to help you find your attachment style. This does not tell you what you will always be because like we've talked about here, you can change to become more secure. Now that you know, attachment exists, find out where you're starting and then learn how to fix it. Whether that's with me or with, you know, there's just, uh, well, there's not very many people talking about attachment, but um, learn about attachment, learn about how to fix it. I have a book called slaying your fear. It's on Amazon and just about every country in the world. You can find that book. It will walk you through it. I have a boot camp course, the attachment boot camp. fix your attachment in seven hours with the videos in the attachment boot camp course. Just send me an email through my website, adamlanesmith.com. I will help you find the next step. But number one, before anything else, 
be aware that you can fix these feelings that you have had for your whole life. You are not stuck and you can absolutely fix it. No case has ever been too severe. Awesome advice. Ad, where can the audience find you? I'll include everything in the show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, AdamLaneSmith.com is my website. I'm also on YouTube at Adam Lane Smith. I'm on Instagram as at Attachment Adam. And uh, if you like me on TikTok, I'm TikTok. I'm at Attachment Bro, and I've got three hundred thousand followers over there. I've been doing a lot more TikTok, a lot more YouTube lives lately. So if you want to come in and ask me questions on Q and A, find me there. Thanks again for your time, Adam. I really, really enjoyed that, and I know the audience are going to get a ton of value from that. Thanks very much, brother. Thank you.